You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Welcome to Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. This is our first show. We're so excited to be with you. I am one of your hosts, Ebony K. Williams. And I am Mari Fagel. I'm so excited for our first show. We are. We're <laughs> so excited. So this is, as I said, Justice is served. But we're bringing you the latest in your legal roundup for the week. So we're going to just tell you a little bit about us first so you understand why we're here doing this. Um, so I'm getting old. I was thinking about this before it started. I've been practicing law since 2007. I've worked in a variety of forums. I've worked in private practice, public practice as a public defender in North Carolina, and uh, practiced criminal law and family law and civil litigation. And it's always just been a passion of mine. I love talking about it. And now that we're here in, in Hollywood, why not talk about the intersection of law and Hollywood? It's so much fun. And I actually took a different route. I was a reporter for New York One News in New York, and then I decided I wanted to uh, go to law school and get into the legal realm. So I started a blog called YourLegalLady.com. You should check it out. <laughs> and uh, I've worked for the Cook County Public Defender's Office in Chicago. I just finished working for the California Court of Appeal downtown. And uh, on my blog, I do a lot of headline news. I'm excited to talk about more entertainment news. Uh, have some fun on this show. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what we're here for, to, to bring fun into a very serious topic. I mean, we're definitely going to get into some really meaty um, legal nuances here on the show, but we want to always keep it fun and spicy as well. So we're going to start off this first segment, which is called our case of the week. And this week, uh, you know, you can't really escape the the media coverage of the case of, of the Michael Jackson civil suit. I'm talking about the civil suit filed by his mother, Catherine Jackson, and his three children against the concert promotion company, AEG. Yeah. Actually, because you were saying this week, this is the 15th week yes. that this trial has gone on. So these jurors wow. have sat there for 15 weeks. The judge just said they're going to be there till September. But you yeah. want to know what's interesting is they're not getting tired. They're not getting bored. Right. They actually yesterday during testimony were applauding right. at one point the concert director that got up. So it's good to see that like these jurors are doing their civil duty. They're right. coming in every day, day in, day out. And it's a fascinating case to... Um, um, to follow, I actually sat in on the trial for two days of testimony last week. I want to give a little bit of a background sure. just for our viewers. So um, obviously there was the criminal trial against Conrad Murray, and he was convicted uh, of manslaughter. He obviously gave Michael Jackson propofol, and he OD'd on the propofol. This case, like you said, is a civil suit where Catherine Jackson and Michael Jackson's family and estate is suing AEG, the concert promoter right. who had set up the This Is It tour, claiming uh, they're suing them for wrongful death, and they're claiming uh, that AEG negligently hired, retained, and controlled Conrad Murray. The key to that would have been if there was a contract. If there was a contract that AEG retained uh, Conrad Murray and each of the parties signed it, then it would be an open and shut case. They hired him. They're the ones responsible for him. They're the ones responsible for what he did. The problem is 
AEG drafted up a contract in 2009 before the concert started, right before the rehearsals. Michael Jackson said, I want Conrad Murray to be my personal doctor. He turned to AEG and he said that. He met Conrad Murray in 2006. He helped him with a tour in England in 2009. He said, I want him to be my doctor for this tour. And AEG said, okay. They contract, they drafted a contract. He was to be paid $150,000 a month. Right. Conrad Murray signed the contract. AEG, Michael Jackson, did not sign the contract. So it's not so to be a valid clear, contract. Mara, let's talk about who that contract was between Conrad Murray and... AEG and Michael Jackson. So it was three different parties okay. that were supposed to sign this contract. Right. And Conrad Murray was the only one who signed it. And right. he was never paid for his services. And we all know what happened. Michael Jackson obviously right. died in June of 2009. Right. And so the key to this case is tying AEG to Conrad Murray. Because AEG is trying to claim... Michael Jackson was the one responsible for him. He's the one who brought him on. He's the one who controlled him and told him what to do. But Catherine Jackson and her family and their attorneys are trying to say AEG should have looked into his background, saw that this was a negligent guy with a lot of debt, a lot of problems, and they're the ones who hired him, and they're the ones who told him to do whatever you needed to do to get Michael Jackson to those rehearsals, to get him practicing. Well, that's certainly an argument that's going to be made, um, (laughs) and has been being made. So just to break this down further, Mark, I mean, you're doing an excellent job of really laying out the the factual um, evidence, so to speak, but what we're talking about here is is the notion that when there's a four-corner document, Mm -hmm. something called the four-corner document, that's controlling. But in the absence of that, which is what you're speaking of, they don't have that in this case. So now they've got to go to outside indicators to make a case for what indeed, because, you know, we all know a contract can be formed on paper, but it can also be formed in other ways. So so certainly that's the, the nux, the crux of this case is to see what type of contract agreement was established in other ways between Murray and potentially AEG. Yeah, it's a much tougher case because they don't have that binding contract. Right. And the attorney for AEG who drafted that contract actually testified this week. Right. But what was bigger testimony this week was Kenny Ortega, who was yes. the choreographer and director for the tour. Yes. He sent an email that uh, Michael Jackson's family claims is the smoking gun in this this case because right. he sent an email to the head of AEG just before Michael Jackson died. Uh, and I just want to get the exact quote. He said, he's like a lost boy. There still may be a chance he can rise to the occasion if we get him the help he needs. Were you aware that MJ's doctor didn't permit him to attend rehearsals yesterday? Please have them stay on top of his health situation without invading MJ's privacy. It might be a good idea to talk with his doctor to make sure everything MJ requires is in place. Michael Jackson's family is trying to use that email to claim that AEG is the one telling Murray what to do. AEG saying, give him the propofol, whatever it takes to get him to those rehearsals. So it's a very interesting case, but it's it's thin evidence. You have to take a lot of leaps and assumptions to yeah. get to yeah. the yeah. verdict. And, and and on the other side of that, too, Mari, anybody who's seen uh, the Michael Jackson documentary, This Is It, which I own a copy of, <laughs> and went to the theaters as soon as it was released to see it, you see a very different story. You see a Michael Jackson who looks capable, a Michael Jackson who seems excited about this show, who seems to be, you know, singing when not even asked to, just ad-libbing. So you can see where AEG will also be able to make a compelling argument that 
much of this was on Michael. He wasn't this kind of frail, lost boy that Ortega and maybe the Jackson family is presenting him to be. Um, So it's certainly something that's two-sided. Yeah, well, and they're actually also trying to go with the argument that this is a drug addict. This was Michael Jackson's fault at the end of the day. And the testimony that I sat in on last week, it was very interesting. It was the head, his former head of security Mm -hmm. uh, for a couple years from 2001 to 2004 and briefly again in 2007, who a lot of information that he was testifying um, about had only come out in his deposition, never before heard of information about Michael Jackson. He said at one point he was on a vacation at Disneyland with Michael Jackson and his three kids, Mm -hmm. and the kids called 911 in the middle of the night. They said, Daddy's not waking up. Mm. He ran into the room. Michael Jackson was lying face first on the floor in the hallway. He woke him up. They had called the paramedics, and the head of security said, you know what? We don't need the paramedics. He's fine now. Mm -hmm. Then he told another story about how the Jackson family wanted to do an intervention. Mm -hmm. They were on their way to Neverland Ranch, and Michael Jackson told this head of security, stop them. I do not want them coming into my house. And he had to turn away. I don't know if it was Randy, but one of the brothers, he had to turn him away at the door because Michael Jackson did not want that intervention. But then at the same time, you could tell that this head of security, he he almost started crying at several different points. He obviously really cared about Michael Jackson and said sometimes he had so much energy and so much excitement. And then other times when he was uh, traveling out of town in the middle of the night, he would call him right. um, and he couldn't speak. He was mumbling. He was incoherent. Right. And he said this was just he was a lonely man, but he obviously really cared for him. Yeah. And I don't think anybody with good sense would debate that Michael Jackson clearly ha- was a drug addict and had a lot of codependency problems. I think ultimately this case is going to be about the notion of perhaps shared responsibility. I mean, mm-hmm. we know Michael Jackson has some responsibility in this and ultimately he paid with the, the highest price his life. So now I think that when we're looking at the extent that AEG is liable for this, right, we need to really examine how much they knew, mm-hmm. how much they turned a blind eye to, and then how much of that they need to own. And and I certainly think that's where this case is going to go. Like you said, the last key to it. So first they have to find, mm-hmm. the jury has to find that AEG was responsible for his death. Second, the question is how much? What's that price tag? Right. What and that Michael worth? Jackson's family is claiming had he not died, he would have been worth $1.5 billion dollars. AEG is trying to claim first off he was um he's worth more dead than alive and if right. he had lived they had an expert testify and this was also very interesting testimony I saw last week claiming that if Michael Jackson had lived he wouldn't have made a dime. This expert actually got up and said that. And what was crazy about this is this man had helped draw up Michael Jackson's estate documents. And then he turned sides. He turned sides for um, $700,000. That's how much he was retained for. That's $800 an hour for him to do his expert testimony testimony and his preparation for it. And he said that Michael Jackson wouldn't have made a dime because he wouldn't have finished that tour even if he was alive. He would have canceled. He would have um, gotten sick. He wouldn't have made money. That his Q score, his popularity was so low that people wouldn't have bought the tickets. People wouldn't have gone to the shows. And it's crazy because, um, and I loved his attorney, Michael Jackson's attorney on this. He was hard on this guy in cross. He said, okay, you're basing your testimony off of the Q score, which is only 1,800 Americans get polled on popularity rankings. What about Asia, Europe, where right. Michael Jackson is hugely Still popular? Huge, yeah. And so, you know, this guy kind of 
it's it's either zero dollars or one point five billion dollars. So it's a well, huge Mari, disparity. Judging by the tone of that replay, there, do you are you skeptical of paid for expert testimony? <laughs> when you're paid a hundred dollars an hour, I think so. Maybe something fishy with that. Well, so there you have it. That's just a little bit. I mean, there's so much to talk about this case. That's a little nutshell of where things are currently, and you're going to be reporting back to us. I'm sure. Again, we will talk about that case many more times here on this program. So next up, our next segment here. On the docket. This is going to be our staple segment where we talk about just, you know, some really popular intersections of law in Hollywood uh, going on for the week. So top of the docket this week, rapper 50 Cent Monday was in a Los Angeles court where he entered a not guilty plea in a domestic violence charge. Uh, One of his I hate the term baby mama, but baby mamas, uh, has alleged that that he was uh, very violent, kicking down a door, uh, physically assaulting her, uh, to the tune of about $7,100 worth of damage to the property at the scene. Again, uh, 50 Cent, a uh, government name being Curtis Jackson, went into court, entered a not guilty plea in response to these charges. Mari, what do you think about this? Well, I think it doesn't look good for him because she was so scared, allegedly, that she locked herself into the bedroom and he kicked down the bedroom door. He broke chandeliers. He broke a lamp. He broke furniture. He took all the clothes in her closet, ransacked it. And all of that is there's evidence of all of that. And, you know, it kind of reminded me of Oscar Pistorius a little bit when um, Reva Steenkamp locked herself allegedly into the bathroom and he shot through the bathroom door she locked herself into the bedroom and he kicked down that bedroom door that in itself is evidence of a huge obviously dispute going on so right right so we know that there was a lot of damage we know that the door was kicked down and that's all horrible and and whatnot but what we don't know is who the instigator was and what we mm-hmm. don't know is the person that actually did this i mean it, it, I, you know someone who's worked in this extensively I have seen women be the instigators of this type of severe violence. And, and, and the it women happens. is the one that's locking themselves in the bedroom door. door and we don't know that he wasn't locked in the door, Mari. We don't know that. We don't, Until there's a witness on the stand under sworn testimony and oath this, to say that it was her, in fact, it, we don't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, in witnesses, unfortunately, and, you know, I'm all for the protection and safety of women, particularly when it comes to domestic issues. But come on now. We have to be honest about the fact that right now this is a he said, she said. And without more corroborating evidence to support the validity of her claim uh this is very much still uh, very much 50 50 to me no pun intended 50 cent okay you let's see i did that there (laughs) (laughs) but uh but no but no certainly doesn't look good for curtis absolutely not but this is this is where the law is is interesting to me Mm -hmm. right because we hear these stories and we hear these stories and certainly it's something that looks obvious. It looks very open and shut. But then when you dig deep and you look at the burdens of proof, this young lady is going to have to get to a beyond a reasonable doubt burden of proof for there to be a conviction of, of 50 cent on these issues. So we'll know more. Uh, he's got a court date September 4th. And um, and you know. he, if convicted on all five counts, he would face up to five years in jail and forty six thousand dollars in fines. Yeah. But it's felony. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, the, the consequences are high. Now, I'm not completely familiar with his previous record but in the instance that it's nothing extensive he probably wouldn't serve an active sentence if this was like his first or second offense he'd probably get some kind of probation but again that's if and when the the state of of california meets its burden of proof that that there's indeed some evidence beyond just her testimony that 
he was the aggressor and he was the person, you know, causing all this damage and assault. That's why actually that he said, she said really does remind me of the Oscar Pistorius right. case and what happened right. there. But I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. I'm sure we will. So next up on the docket, um, to somebody who stays on a celebrity justice docket, Chris Brown. My goodness, <laughs> this boy just can't get it right. Yeah, will he ever like not be on our docket? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, we should take a wager. Okay, this is our inaugural show. I'm predicting out of 70% of our shows, Chris Brown will show up on the docket of the week. I was going to say something like at least five more times before the end of the year. I don't know. You're saying more. <laughs> I'm saying even more. But okay, yeah. we'll see. We'll see who wins by, by, by the holiday season. Okay, so Chris Brown, he was actually detained in jail, in custody, for 40 minutes um, on a hit and run that he's suspected to be involved in. Uh, thoughts on this one, Mari? Okay, minutes, here's not the thing. Apparently, he refused <laughs> to show his driver's license after an accident, and he gave false insurance information. And then he tweeted out saying, uh, you know, it's not a hit and run if you get out of your car exchange information, and there's no damage to either cars. This is really ridiculous. If you give false information, <laughs> then that's right. not giving information. That's not exchanging information. And also, yeah. the whole 40 minutes, I'm not that surprised. I mean, we've seen this with Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, Nicole Ritchie. They have all... Uh, they have all gone in and out. And uh, the whole a lot of it is due to overcrowding in the L.A. County jails. I mean, Conrad Murray was supposed to spend four years in jail. Right. He's getting out this October after two years, partly for good behavior, but large part due to overcrowding. overcrowding. Now, Mar, we just had some breaking news come in from our production booth that Chris Brown, as we speak, is currently in a, in a hospital uh, as a result of a seizure. Well, so, this is the second time we're talking about him. Right, so far. I about to say he's already racking up on the docket. <laughs> but no, you know, I was going to take a moment here because I, I don't know the details of no. this seizure. But I'm going to go on record to predict probably has something to do with these drugs these kids are taking these days. These um, it's this cough syrup and whatnot that he and Rihanna and all these rap stars and things rap about. And Little Wayne was in the hospital about a month ago for the same thing you know and 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 regardless of what you think personally about chris brown anybody like him hate him whatever the loss of life we're continuing to see with these celebrities as a result of this type of recreational drug use and even honestly michael jackson it's another example of the same thing today's the birthday of whitney houston same thing Hmm. i don't know when and if we're going to get away from it mari but it's really troubling to me I mean, I'm going to wait on comment until we get more information as sure. to what happened. But um, hopefully he's all right. And yeah. And I hope Rihanna. I love Rihanna. Oh, so. do you know? <laughs> and, yet, and, and our first on-air disagreement. Mm. No! All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Next up on the docket here, moving on to B. Scott. B. Scott, he's a celebrity blogger. Uh, many people. He has a huge YouTube following and he also appears on network television as well. Now, just this past uh, summer, he appeared on the BET Network as a style report on the red carpet in preview of the BET Awards themselves. Well, this week, he filed a $2.5 million lawsuit against BET. Why? Because he alleges that there was some gender discrimination going on. B. Scott, again, he's a blogger known famously for his transgendered appearance. Uh, he's, he is a man, but he he likes to do what they call fashion flexibility. He's known to wear six-inch stilettos, and he has gorgeous long hair, and he'll beat a face, beating the face, of course, being a makeup reference, um, and he looks fantastic. And apparently he said that he had an agreement and conversations with BET on the front end of this thing, and they approved all of his fashion-flexible appearances, um, all of his outfits, all his makeup, all of his hair decisions. And then come the day of the event, 
He appeared as, as the fa- fashion flexible person at first. They snatched him from the red carpet, made him go back in his trailer, put on loafers, take off the heels, take off his kind of blousy top that he had on and put on a structured blazer, pull his long, gorgeous, straight hair back into a low ponytail and mute the makeup, you know, take off the blush and the lip color. And as a result of that, and then ultimately after even that one segment, they just yanked him from the carpet altogether. And put Adrian Bailon on. And, so. and put Adrian Bailon on. So, you know, Beast got it first. And I, I actually went to college with Brandon. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to, we went to UNC Chapel Hill together. I know him uh, personally. And this is something, of course, he struggled with. I can't imagine what it must be like to be a transgender person in this community in this day and age. But it's something he struggled with and something he's garnered a lot of support from. So I think this was particularly hurtful for him. And he wrote an open letter right following this experience. And ultimately, now we're seeing him take some legal action with this lawsuit. So do you think there's grounds for this on a legal basis? I don't know. I mean, obviously, we we have what we just reported on, but sometimes it is difficult with some of these discrimination suits. Uh, But I do think it is important regard and also... A lot of what he said and what his attorney said is that they're not really looking for the compensation so much as a genuine apology. Do you think they're going to get that from no, BET? No, because a genuine yeah. apology would mean they're admitting to something. I, yeah. I can read what BET did say. Okay, sure. But, you know, BET Networks embraces global diversity in all its forms and seeks to maintain an inclusive workforce in a culture that values all perspectives and backgrounds. The incident with B. Scott was a singular one with a series of unfortunate miscommunications from both parties. We regret any unintentional offense to B. Scott and anyone within the LGBT community, and we seek to continue embracing all gender expressions. He wants them to admit, you intentionally did this to me, and you need to apologize. Well, that would admit to intentional <laughs> infliction of emotional distress, which right. is one of the counts that he's suing on. Absolutely. So they're not gonna, he's not going to get what he wants. But with some of these cases and these suits, what's most important to me is that we're having a conversation about this. We're having a dialogue about this. And especially when it comes to the transgender community, I think that's the next step that we need to go in as a country. Absolutely. More conversations. Yeah, I was on on O'Reilly Factor earlier today, and one of the segments was about, right now as we sit here, uh, California Governor Jerry Brown is considering signing legislation that would allow for transgendered high school students to go to the bathrooms and play on the sports teams of the genders that they identify with rather than the ones they're born into. So very controversial topic. But again, like you said, we're having the conversation and maybe that's the best place to start. So next up on the docket, Usher, R&B superstar back in what looks like, you know, a never ending child custody battle with his ex-wife, Tamika Foster. Uh, Tamika is now reopening the issue of, of primary custody. Right now, Usher is the, the sole parent. He's the sole guardian. She's now seeking to be uh, at least joint or primary custodian of the children following a near-death experience with one of the boys uh, almost drowned over the weekend. So thoughts to the validity of that? you think she'll succeed? You know what's puzzling to me is why Usher won primary custody in the first place because that is rare. That is that really troubling to you, Mari? Because I, I didn't really... say troubling. I said okay. puzzling. Puzzling. I said puzzling. It's me. not troubling Even to puzzling. me. Even puzzling. Is that puzzling? Why is it that the mother who is in Atlanta at all times did not get primary custody? I don't know. I don't know what what failing she has as a mother that Usher, who does travel, at at least she says, in excess of 85% each month, he's traveling and on the road. Why the court decided to award him primary custody first. Obviously, there's some things that we don't know about. I do think that it is a sad situation that she is bringing an unfortunate accident and accidents do happen. Mm. 
and using that against him because when his five-year-old son fell in the water, his aunt was watching him. It's not like he was by, by himself or even just with a nanny. A relative was watching him and Usher got into the ambulance with him. So even though he wasn't there when the accident happened, he was there soon after. And I mean, yeah, but it's any- almost um, I, not to, to cut you off, my but playing devil's advocate, certainly from a judge's perspective, I don't think almost counts when you're talking about children. And also, I think that there's ultimately, you know, the best interest of the child is always going to be the controlling law of any custody case. Mm-hmm. Best interest of the child. So many 10 to 12 factors go into considering that one of them. Of course, it's finances. So getting to back to your original point, you know, why was he awarded primary custody to begin with? Well, one reason is Tamika Foster doesn't have a red cent hardly to her name, nor does she. She was unable. I watched some of this uh, case play out. She really could never show the judge any real way that she could go about earning money to support her children. You know, it's one thing when you don't have it, but it's another thing when you really can't show any way to, to remedy that situation. I just thought it's unfortunate that she is using this accent because... Yeah. Her son died after a jet ski accident, another water accident last year. So she should know that these things can happen. And no one is faulting her as a mother for what happened last year. And I don't think that he should be faulted as a father. I think that those two AV guys who saved his son are heroes. And Usher thanked them properly. Um, But I, you know. But isn't this legal strategy, though, Mari? Isn't this less about her? You know, wanting to blame Usher personally, and this is she's seeing an in. Yes, she's no, I'm a, a not surprised end. that she's yeah. using it. I'm just saying it's unfortunate when these two little boys are mm-hmm. stuck in a battle between parents. Yeah, and, the, and you know, it reminds me of the Dwayne Wade situation with his ex-wife. I mean, it's just brutal for these boys. Absolutely. Um, so next up, so that's that's our docket for this week. We'll have so much more next. I can't even wait. But um, <laughs> next up, we have a special guest, right? Um, I'm not sure if he is on the line yet. Unfortunately, oh, okay. uh, we had to change schedules a little oh, bit. Okay. Uh, we were supposed to have Daniel Marie, the founder of Million Hoodies, um, on with us on the line today. He's in New York. Oh, and um, hopefully we can get him back for sure. another week. And actually, I was going to say, next week we'll have a pretty interesting guest. When we were talking about yeah. the Michael Jackson case, um, Julia Thomas, I met her at the Michael Jackson case last week. Right. She, I met her because she was sitting there. She had... Um, like an MJ shirt on both days that I sat there, wow. like a different MJ shirt. And she sat with a, uh, with a group of people and she was calling out things. She was like very invested in the case. And, wow. you know, she was like, she, she knows what's going on. So I turned to her afterwards. I said, do you come here a lot? And she was like, I have not missed a single day of this trial. Keep in mind, 15 week trial. Right. And she didn't miss a single day of the Conrad Murray trial. That's she amazing. says she's there to support Catherine Jackson, to support the family. She's a huge lifelong MJ fan and she she will not miss a single day of trial, either the first case and the second case. So she's going to come in next week and she's going to talk to us. And it's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. You know, what motivates someone to, you know, she's giving up her daily schedule yes, for weeks is. on end yeah. to watch this trial and, you know, provide support. And so, you know, I want to get her perspective on things. So that should be interesting. That should be very interesting. Uh, indeed. I'm, I can't wait to hear what. The progress that she's seen as this thing, you know, seems to continue. Uh, now, the, the guest that we were going to have today he was going to be talking about the Million Hoodie March, which, of course, is a, uh, involved or a result of the Zimmerman acquittal uh, and the the, the 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 Trayvon Martin case in general. Correct? Well, actually, he started the Million Hoodie movement um, at the outset of the case the after case. Okay. Trayvon Martin um, was shot. That this was back in February of uh, twenty. 
2012. I'm like mm-hmm. so off okay. of my dates. Yeah. And, um, you know, I did a segment on Huffington Post Live with Daniel, and it's very interesting. And, you know, this the segment I did with him was while the trial was going on. Wow. And so I thought it would be really interesting to get his perspective of where the movement is going now that George Zimmerman has indeed been acquitted. And if anything, it's important most now than ever because the Million Hoodie movement had so much power behind it when the case was in the headlines and trying to reform Stand Your Ground or get rid of Stand Your Ground and having conversations about racial bias, having conversations about gun laws. Those things can fade away when Certainly. that trial has not no longer has that national attention and that national stage. And so I want to see what he's going to do to keep the conversation going. And it was interesting because this week, Ebony Magazine, they're trying to keep that conversation sure. going. They featured several different covers, one with uh, Trayvon Martin's parents and brother on the cover and several others with several celebrities and their sons wearing the hoodie. Right. Uh, we had Spike Lee, Dwayne Wade and his son mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, they're trying to keep that conversation going. I actually saw last week on Change.org, the Martin family put out a petition. Right. And Change.org was actually pretty prominent in the very beginning. I would beginning. say very influential in even getting charges levied exactly. against uh, when, George Zimmerman. Yeah. Exactly. When I first heard the name Trayvon Martin, it was on Facebook. Right. Because this case started through social media. Yes, it did. And then I don't think George Zimmerman ever would have even been um, charged if it had not been for yeah. the social media outpouring and then obviously the national media uh, taking the lead. Um, but yeah, they have another petition on change.org. So people who are who support that can go on and sign it. They're reaching out to the 13 states that have some form of stand your ground laws to yeah. try to get them to either eliminate them or reform them. And uh, we can have a conversation. I, and we only have a couple minutes. I want to yeah. get your thoughts on stand your ground. <laughs> <laughs> that could take a long time. That could take a long time. We may want to keep that for, yes, for when yes. Daniel is on. Um, yeah. And hopefully we'll have him on soon. Um, yeah. But to be clear, you know, that, that, that I guess the petition may be addressing the 13 states, but there's actually closer to 23 states in our country that has some type of stand your ground-ish legislation mm-hmm. that takes standard traditional self-defense and it takes it further. Yes. Um, and the, the key to, to what takes it further is traditionally in, in a traditional self-defense, first there's a duty to retreat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a duty that says if you feel like you're in imminent uh, danger of harm, that you uh, first should try to escape the harm. That's what the law calls a duty of retreat. Well, with Florida's statute and a lot of others like it, they remove that duty to retreat. And then they and then from there, it opens what some consider a floodgate to, you know, some really kind of dangerous waters. The other problem I see with Stand Your Ground is it's an immunity. The immunity clause. Right. Well, that's and that's a whole separate uh, conversation. And all of the states don't have that portion. Yes. Of it, and that's but the problem to, I yeah. have with Florida's law is and and George Zimmerman did not utilize Stand Your Ground in the criminal case. I, it may have been a factor in some of the jurors' minds. Well, it was in the jury instructions, so certainly. But he did not utilize that. He used well, classic he self-defense. Yeah. And the difference is, Stand Your Ground, had he tried to use that and got that hearing, then he wouldn't have and he wouldn't have been charged in the first place. That's the scary part about it. And it's scary in a civil suit. The right. Martins could bring a civil suit. And oftentimes, families that don't get justice 
case in the criminal trial will at least get some sort of a civil verdict. We saw this with the O.J. Simpson case. George Zimmerman may not ever face a civil trial because of Stand Your Ground. It works as an immunity in both criminal and civil cases. And that, it's weight that to me is too sweeping. It's too broad. Self-defense is an affirmative defense. You need to... you got to prove it according to it, up to a trier of fact, whether that be a judge or in this case a jury. And that's a whole separate issue. But I actually have a problem with the six panel juror panel in Florida anyway. That's problematic to me. And we can talk about why at a different date. (laughs) But um, but yes, certainly. I mean, the immunity clause undermines the entire concept of a jury by your peers. It undermines the entire concept of, as you're speaking of, affirmative defenses, having Mm -hmm. your day in court. Mm -hmm. Well, if you've got a statute that in its very construction takes away the day in court concept, or leaves it up to a judge to decide or before even, you even face the trial. And even before you get to the judge, it kind of almost leaves it up to yeah. law enforcement yes. to make a lot of subjective judgments. And and they actually then start working backwards, Mari, because typically when law enforcement comes to the scene of a crime, they are looking for answers. But with Stand Your Ground is invoked, now you've got these officers and investigators working backwards. You're giving them the conclusion of what happened, and then they're left to kind of put the pieces of evidence together around that asserted conclusion. It's mm-hmm. very, very very fundamentally wrong to me. Yeah, and I think, I like I said, I think it's way too broad, it's way too sweeping, right. and classic self-defense was created for a reason, and I don't think that Stand Absolutely. Your Ground in the version they have in Florida should remain. Absolutely. Well, that was great. <laughs> well, you know, I think, again, this is going to be such an amazing show. Always so much interesting, nuanced things to talk about when it t- comes to law and particularly how it intersects with Hollywood. So there you have it. That was our first show, guys. Please come back. You can find more of us. I'm Ebony K at Ebony underscore K on Twitter. Please check out my blog, ebonykwilliams.com, where you'll see clips of my commentary both here, Fox News, CNN, and the NFL Network. And you can tweet me at Mari Fagel, M A R I F A G E L. <laughs> and you can find me on my blog, yourlegallady.com. Awesome. Thanks, guys. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, Dario Christian, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. If you have questions or comments, tweet us at BHL Online or email us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. For more exclusive content, visit blackhollywoodlive.com. This has been a presentation of the Black Hollywood Live Network. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.